we witnessed or we came upon a person that was struck as a, as a pedestrian uh, by a vehicle. And as we were coming up on onto that scene, there was a bunch of us in the vehicle. There was a, a pickup truck that pulled out and uh, two people got out um, dressed in kind of a, a Red Cross uh, type of, uh, you know, kind of a, a visibility uh, jacket or whatever. Uh, picked up the person off the ground by the arms and legs, hauled him into the back of the pickup truck, then both proceeded to jump back in the cab of the pickup truck and drive off. That was their version of 911. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I am Stephen P. Wood, your host for today's session. I'm a critical care and emergency medicine nurse practitioner and World Extreme Medicine Fellow, and I'm very excited to have you joining us today. I'm delighted today to be hosting Alan Lewis. Alan is an adjunct professor for Columbia Southern University and an associate consultant with Emergency Services Consulting International. He's joining me today to discuss a very important component of disaster response and humanitarian response and that is cultural competency when working in developing countries. So welcome, Alan. It's great to have you on today. Well, thank you, Stephen, and a big thank you to World Extreme Medicine. Uh, I've had a great experience uh, presenting at the conference last year and uh, discussing with the great attendees there. So I look forward to this conversation, and I, I think it's a very important conversation um, that few people are prepared for when they go into the world of humanitarian operations and, uh, you know, international type of work. And so I'm looking forward. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think we spend a lot of time, especially as medical providers, thinking about, you know, uh, some of the disease processes that we might uh, see. We think about what medications or equipment to bring. You know, I've had a lot of discussions with guests about safety, uh, about planning uh, communication networks, uh, but one thing I think that, you know, gets left off a lot of checklists for, you know, responding to humanitarian um, aid or, or being in a disaster response or even just traveling to another country is really thinking about cultural competency in these, you know, areas. And that's what we'll talk about today. So tell me a little bit about your background and, and your interest in this area, this field. Well, it really came up about that I stumbled onto it, you know, my first really international kind of deployment was kind of by accident with a non-governmental organization when I was visiting a friend in Belize and uh, found out, you know, that there was a team being put together to go to her, to go to the disaster ravaged area of Honduras, which was, had just been hit by Hurricane Mitch. And so I'm dating myself a bit here, but, you know, this was uh, 1998 and, we just kind of, you know, fell into it where they said, hey, we're putting a team together. Do you want to go? And I was in the middle of my paramedic training at that time. And I said, sure, why not? So about three weeks was spent um, in a city outside of Tegucigalpa known as El Progreso, which is kind of between San Pedro Sula and, and the north part of that region there. And I really got my eyes opened, I guess, at that time as, you know, a pretty young 21-year-old um, kid, so to speak. Uh, never really traveled outside the U.S., you know, if you don't count Canada. Um, you know, it, it really it really opened my eyes to the needs of a, of a population and just how little they had in terms of, you know, not just food and medicine, but uh, availability of resilience, you know, to, to basically lack of infrastructure. 
And uh, it really made me appreciate, you know, what we have in the U.S. and what we take for granted many times with, you know, 911 being universal. And there, there is no 911. Yeah, that's, I mean, for one, I, I uh, congratulate you for spent for taking your time outside of Belize. That sounded like it was a nice place to be. But, um, uh, you know, that's obviously you know, those of us who work in emergency medicine and who work in disaster medicine, we're, you know, we're ready to respond regardless of where we are. Um, but uh, that, so that, that experience was kind of your first experience uh, working with a, a population outside of the, the norm that you knew, which was the United States and, and all the infrastructure and resources we have. I think even in some of the poorest areas of the United States, you know, the access to healthcare is, is just, so much beyond what what you might see in, in other countries. What were some of the lessons that you learned at that early age as a as a young, you know, uh, training paramedic uh, in your first disaster? What were some of the things that really drove home those points and made this an, an area of your interest? Well, one, you better be as we call it, super gumby. You better be uh, adaptable and. Uh, just very um, open to doing things in a different way and finding, um, you know, non, non-normal ways of doing things. For example, uh, we witnessed or we came upon a person that was struck as a, as a pedestrian uh, by a vehicle. And as we were coming up on, onto that scene, there was a bunch of us in the vehicle. There was a, a pickup truck that pulled out and uh, two people got out um, dressed in kind of a, a Red Cross uh, type of uh you know, kind of a, a visibility uh, jacket or whatever, uh, picked up the person off the ground by the arms and legs, hauled him into the back of the pickup truck, then both proceeded to jump back in the cab of the pickup truck and drive off. That was their version of 911 uh, and an ambulance. Um, and it just kind of taught me right there that, wow, uh, don't take anything for granted. I mean, you know, not to mention, you know, that the C-spine precautions were thrown to the wind, that the guy was not doing very good to begin with. Um, it just made me realize that, you know, there are, there are such a lack of capability and standardization of care throughout the, throughout the world. And I guess he's lucky that he even had anybody come pick him up because in many parts of the world, um, you don't, or you have to pay ahead of time. Uh, before that happens. So uh, the just being, you know, kind of getting your eyes open to different ways of, you know, countries and cultures and what their expected normal is, um, was was probably the biggest. Um, and just the the lack of, of prenatal care um, was one thing that we saw in especially the villagers that had, had a lot of their belongings and completely their homes destroyed. Um, so there was lack of pre-hospital care, lack of prenatal care um, for very, very common and easy to fix, you know, GP type of things that, you know, had a, you know an ounce of prevention would have definitely been worth a pound of cure. But we just saw a lot of exasper- exacerbated problems due to uh, non-clean, you know, no, no, no clean drinking water and lack of a sanitation system. And if you could fix the drinking water problem, uh, clean drinking water and the sanitation, that would take care of a very large number of your you know, disease processes. And I know that's not new to any of our, our listeners, but it was really, really impressed upon me because, you know, in, in paramedics school and paramedics school, they don't really talk about, you know, those type of, of issues that arise from, you know, drinking water and, and um, sanitation um, or the lack thereof. It's a focus on, you know, a lot of trauma, a lot of cardiac, a lot of respiratory. Um, but 
you know, in the, in the developing world, there is a, a very, very different focus. Um, yes, they still have the trauma and they still have, you know, the medical concerns. But again, the root cause of a lot of this could be fixed with clean drinking water and, and good sanitation systems. And then sometimes, you know, which is getting better now, but some, you know, childhood immunizations. No, I agree. And, and my background is in paramedicine as well. And, and uh, you know, certainly... There really wasn't much um, with regard to public health measures, and I, on, I I think that's a really growing piece to you know what how EMS can contribute to our to our healthcare system and to others, which is having some engagement in, in those public health concerns and, and really learning about these very simple things that that make a significant impact. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because, um, you know, we throw the term cultural competency around uh, a, a bit, and we'll we'll kind of get to that definition here in a little bit. But, you know, even, even um, in our own system, I work, you know, now in an intensive care unit, um, we're always somewhat critical when we get transfers from, you know, that famous outside hospital um, about certain things that were done, certain, you know, uh, uh, procedures or, or, you know, diagnoses, things of that nature, just in our own system. How important do you think it is to temper these kind of criticisms when you're, you know, an American or Canadian or someone from a developed country traveling to an area that's, you know, resource poor um, and seeing things like you saw, like the, you know, kind of load and go with a trauma victim where we might place a sea collar, put a, you know, put them on a backboard back in the day, or at least, you know, oxygen, oxygen, and potentially IV access. How, how uh, important is it to temper criticisms? And what are some of the things that, you know, that you feel we as providers can do to help, you know, us adapt to those different clinical scenarios? Well, that's a, that's a good question, because I think the first thing that a, a provider should do when going into a, an, another country, another developing country, especially, is seek to learn as much as you can beforehand about the system. Now, I didn't have much time in Honduras. I had a little bit more time when I went to Sudan, and we can talk about that later. But still, the information that you get outside of your area of operation may be very, very different than what the practicality, you know, boots on the ground, uh, actual operations are like. By that, I mean, what you actually encounter may be, diff may be very different than what is, is reported. Um, understand the system and the constraints that they're in. For example, in Honduras, there there is no uh, there is no nationalized system of any kind of standardization of care. There is no QA. There is no QI. Um, there just isn't the the checks that we have for for quality and. The developed countries. So understand that the system you're going into is resource poor, but that doesn't denigrate the willingness and the dedication of the of the of the providers that are there. There are some very very good, kind-hearted people that are doing the best they can with the resources they have, and would love to have just a bit more resources, a bit more training. Um, one thing that I have noticed is every country that I've ever been to um, in the developing world, when training has been offered, they have eagerly taken it up. Um, it, it's never been turned down. Um, so there's a there's really a hunger for that. So I would say that when providers go into these countries, understand the system that you're going into and don't use the standard that you're used to um, and have a, you know, developed country kind of uh, centric uh, approach to it. You, 
your system in the U.S. or Canada or Australia or, or UK will not work um, in in these systems with the constraints that they currently have. Um, you're taking you know what you view as perfect or or much better in your world, which just will not work uh, in the way that the current system is set up. So understand, you know, what they're working with and seek to be relatable to the providers. Uh, again, it comes to that famous saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So make sure that you're able to establish a commonality and really assist where you can. Uh, the criticism does no good. Believe me, they would they would be doing better and they would be using, you know, sea collars if they had any money to afford them. Uh, they'd be using the spine board um, you know, in, in the indicated situations if, if they had the appropriate training. It isn't for lack of want uh, or it isn't for lack of desire. It's, it's for the lack of, you know, resources being filled that a lot of these providers suffer uh, from. So understand that. And, and I would save, you know, any criticisms, you know, for, you know, probably targeted at officials that, you know, hold money to disperse, you know, to those resources and really try to work with them to show, uh, to build capacity um, through funding of these resources. And sometimes you can do that with government ministers and officials as involve them in the training. And, and if they can see the importance and the value of it um, and be seen as, you know, a, a champion for that, you can really develop uh, somebody that, you know, otherwise wasn't engaged into somebody who's a really big advocate. I think that's, that's an important take home point. And it, and you also speak to, and, and maybe you can speak more to this, that that training goes both ways uh, because I think when we you know deploy somewhere that oftentimes you really need to speak to the local providers and get an understanding of some of the local traditions or you know the way that certain disease processes or trauma is managed uh, from those local providers. You might be able to enhance some of that um, and provide some additional education or training. Do you have any experience with that? And can you speak to how important it is maybe to, to work with the locals and learn from them as well? Oh, absolutely. So I'll use Guatemala City as a great example of that. Um, you know, uh, I've developed a very good relationship with uh, Fire Chief, uh, Chief Cordon um, of the Guatemala City Fire Department, the Volunteros Bomberos. And one of the things that the department there has done under the uh, leadership of, of one of their paramedics has developed a system that involves the usage of, of life packs. Well, these are, you know, life pack 12s that the batteries have basically went out on. I have seen some of the most ingenious wiring for taking a battery pack of uh, AA batteries and taking out the old life pack 12 batteries and remodding it so that all they have to do is put rechargeable batteries in and it runs the life pack 12 complete with defibrillation and everything. Um, it is the most non-standard setup you have ever seen. I, I scratched my head when I saw it, but I've, I've seen it work in action. Uh, the reason for that is, is they can't afford the several hundred dollars that LifePak batteries cost. So they came up when those batteries died, they took the guts out of the inside of those LifePak 12 batteries and they remodded them and they made it work. And it, they did the same with the, uh, with the ventilator, with the uh, suction equipment. I have seen, you know, the most jury-rigged equipment that works, um, but I really have to give them a, a tip of the hat to making the best of some very, very difficult situation. It's either that or you don't have a functioning suction or you don't have a functioning uh, LifePak 12. Um, so 
understand the limitations of the people that you're working with and, you know, you know, reward that ingenuity with, with, with praise because otherwise they wouldn't even be in operation. Um, and then seek to, you know, enhance the training that they have and the equipment that they have. Um, that, that would be my, my takeaways from that. And then, yeah, the, it's just the relatability of just understanding where they're coming from and how difficult. I mean, I, I have accounts of individuals that are literally using their own money to buy personal protective equipment, you know, especially during the, the pandemic um, where departments couldn't provide that um, or didn't have the funding to. And so, you know, out of their own pockets, um, providing, you know, things, even medicines, I, I've, I've seen that as well. And most of us would just, you know, be absolutely appalled that, you know, that that was having to be the case, but it was either that or, or there wouldn't be a, a that level of treatment. Yeah, I think especially, you know, you talked about uh, personal protective equipment. Um, you know, we, we faced, you know, those concerns here in the United States uh, with COVID, but I, I don't think we you know, truly appreciated the impact that this had on less developed countries um, who had even less access, you know, to, to even basic masks, to, to gloves, to those, you know, um, types of equipment. So, yeah, the ingenuity has, has always impressed me when, I, when I've seen, you know, people who come up with ingenious ways to, you know, tackle complex issues uh, in resource poor areas. It's it's really, you know, you know, we, we think we're smart when we're doing some of these things, but uh, it's just amazing to see some of the ingenuity that can come from, you know, need. And that's uh, a great story about the defibrillators. I'm not sure physio is necessarily psyched about that, but uh, but it just it, it's a necessity, and it and it, and it just shows you, um, you know, what people can do um, when when there's the need. Uh, you mentioned Sudan. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience there and, and uh, some of the, the lessons learned from that experience? Yeah, so in 2001, I was just brand new as a paramedic um, for the most part and uh, took a position with a non-governmental organization known as Samaritan's Purse. Um, and it was, the, it was a logistician slash paramedic position there. And, and the paramedic was kind of the added on uh, benefit. But it was myself and another doctor over there or, that was um, from the U.S., um, and we primarily treated um, the demobilized child soldiers. There were 1,700 demobilized child soldiers that had come into or that had laid down their weapons after an agreement that the U.N. had brokered between the Sudan People's Liberation Army, or SPLA, and the GOS, or Government of Sudan. And remember, this is 2001, and, and so there was still an active conflict um, between the North and the South, there was no South Sudan at this point, although I was geographically located about 15 kilometers outside of Roombeck in a, a little town called Malengagok. Um, and my role there was, well, it evolved over time to handle camp finances, and um, but a lot of it was focused around getting in the, the weekly flights, um, coordinating those um, out of um, Lokachogio, which was our, our jump off point out of Kenya. Um, but these 1,700 kids were divided up into five camps, um, and one of these camps uh, was one that I was primarily at. had just about 350 boys, and when I say boys, I'm talking from five years old um, on up to 18. Um, and these were kids that had, a lot of them had seen active conflict. Um, 
their parents had been killed. Um, almost every single one was a, a complete orphan or um, their parents had been taken into captivity, i.e. most of the time their, their fathers had been killed um, after a raid on the village and then their sisters, their mothers had been taken uh, in the active slave trade. The government of Sudan troops had a pretty active slave trade that they were uh, kidnapping um, the women and children from these villages and uh, running them up on the train line um, through Wow, then into Egypt, and then they would be sold off into Saudi Arabia. And this this continued for years and years. And in fact, the slave trade is still active. Um, for those that don't know, human trafficking is, is very, very much alive and well in, in sub-Saharan Africa, on up to the uh, some of the countries that um, are in the Middle East, especially seem to be big uh, users of, of, the, of the slave trade. So these boys had really nowhere to go other than the Sudan People's Liberation Army. I mean, where does a kid go that, that needs food and has had a family literally wiped out? And when I say wiped out, I mean, these were an Antonov aircraft that would roll in, drop 500-pound barrel bombs, kind of what we've seen in Syria, um, at the same type of things, bomb the villages. Then the Janjaweed militias would sweep through. Um, so the, the horseback-mounted um, terrorists would basically just sweep through and kill everybody that was moving. One boy that I had, I'll never forget, um, hid in a well and uh, grasped onto the side of a well that he climbed into. And for over six hours, he held onto the side of that, um, you know, until the troops were gone and uh, was pulled out of it and uh, then joined the military because there was there was really nothing else for him to do. He had no relatives. He, he had to eat. A lot of these boys hauled firewood. Um, they hauled wood for the camp. They were basically kind of, you know, servants there in, in the camp. The older boys, I would say right around the 13, 14, many of them were on the front line, um, you know, man and weapons, um, had seen active combat, um, had been through some pretty horrible things. It's just adding to the trauma of, you know, already seeing your parents killed, your, your village annihilated, um, your livestock destroyed. And for those that don't understand, so livestock is, is a primary means of wealth. It's a primary means of sustenance. Uh, the Dinka was the tribe that, that I was primarily working with. These boys were all, all from the, the Dinka tribe. Um, and it was, it, it was really, really a blow to them economically um, and, and culturally to, to wipe out the cattle or to run them off in, in the way that these Janjaweed militias did. They really took everything from them. Um, and, you know, we, we had these boys, we, we had them into schools, uh, organized into, we had teachers that were local Sudanese teachers that were brought in. This was all organized under Operation Lifeline Sudan or OLS. And these NGOs like Samaritan's Purse were given, you know, these camps to take care of. But one of the things that was, became so, so important was relatability. And I was just talking to somebody the other day about this is that my background is, as a farm kid, I knew a bit about animal husbandry. And so to talk to them about cattle was, was huge um, in their, you know, kind of broken English. And, and we had English classes for them as, as well in the, in the several months that I was there. And so we could communicate. And uh, there were some that were actually very, very good at, at communicating in, in English. But just establishing that rapport. Um, remember, these are kids that literally didn't know anything about germs, uh, didn't know anything about, you know, sanitation, even simple things like washing your hands. Um, so we saw a lot of things like Bilharzia, guinea worm. Um, there was even some cases of TB. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, the medical that went with it. But the most important thing was the ability to be able to relate uh, to these kids. 
and really they were very, very curious. They wanted to learn English. They all, you know, had great dreams, uh, you know, engineers and doctors. And, and one of the, the kids, it was great to find out just, uh, well, it been a few years ago now, but did actually um, make it to Australia and, and is living there. Um, there's been some success stories that, that have come out of, of that camp. But yeah, very, very interesting experience um, for, for these young boys um, to, to go through that. And I definitely learned a lot as far as relatability and uh, just kind of the universal um, kind of aims, desires, and goals of, of people. And, and it, was, it was definitely a, a life-changing experience. Uh, and a life-changing experience for sure. And uh, yeah, thank you for your work there. And uh, you know, it, it it is an eye-opening experience to hear about you know these young boys that are that have seen you know active military confrontation at the age of five, six, you know, ten, thirteen, whatever it may be. And and it's just uh, you know we we have so many issues that we, that we think about and worry about, uh, you know, and, and we tend to kind of centralize those issues and think about what's important to us. Uh, and, and, you know, just hearing these stories and, 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 uh, you know, knowing what other people have to go through, uh, to survive. It's just, it's very eye opening and, and, and it's critically important for, you know, for people to hear these stories. So, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I do want to take a little bit of a segue. Um, you know, we have a fairly diverse audience uh, here uh, at World Extreme Medicine and, and plenty of paramedics, uh, you know, both in the United States, but also the UK, Australia, Canada and abroad. Um, you know, paramedicine uh, has, as you mentioned, focused a lot on um, kind of, you know, working in a local system. Uh, and we kind of touched on that, you know, it, it'd be interesting to see, you know, paramedic uh, education uh, have a little bit broader uh, introduction to some of these, you know, global health and public health issues. Uh, I think, you know, and, and you can tell me what your thoughts are, but, you know, paramedics are sometimes kind of forgotten when it comes to uh, disaster response or, or work in, in humanitarian areas. I mean, I think, and I'm not sure if it's still the case, but, you know, Doctors Without Borders didn't recognize paramedics as uh, being, you know, uh, part of the healthcare team. Um, you had to be a doctor or a nurse uh, to deploy with them. I uh, don't know if that's changed, and if it has, that's great. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, on paramedicine and, and paramedics getting involved in humanitarian aid? And if, you know, what would your advice be for those of uh, our audience who are in the field of EMS and who are paramedics or EMTs? I think it's a developing field and it, and it should be encouraged. Um, I'm encouraged by some of the formalized education I see, you know, being promoted by, you know, world extreme medicine and that, and the diplomas being offered in, you know, uh, remote medicine and some of these advanced courses that they're taking. I, I would really like to see it looked at and, and established as a professional discipline in an accepted way among other allied healthcare professionals. I, I think we do a great disservice if we, when we overlook paramedics and focus on, you know, 
just doctors and just nurses. Now they definitely have a role and they definitely have a, a place and it, and it. And I was very thankful for the doctor that was with me because otherwise it would have been me and a, and a PDR, physician's desk reference, trying to figure out, you know, this shipment of medications and, and how to use it. That That's not the ideal way. I mean, how many paramedics have, per, you know, prescribed mebendazole? Um, you know, that's just not something that you find in your, um, you know, protocols when you're a, a street paramedic in the USA. I remember when I got back, um, the nurse in my paramedic program, at, this was in Honduras, looked at me and she said, you were prescribing medicine? I said, well, yeah, we had medicine and we had to give it out. Um, you know, we had warming, we had, well, I was doing antibiotics as well, um, regiments, uh, just because of the infections that we were seeing um, in Honduras. And she said, well, who was your supervising physician and who authorized that? And I said, <laughs> it's Honduras. There was none. And, you know, which, you know, do you put yourself at liability? Uh, absolutely. But, you know, considering the circumstances, I mean, who, who's going to sue you and, and what kind of oversight is there really? Um, it was the same in um, Afghanistan. The first time I, I went, I remember getting the Ranger handbook thrown at me, said, here's your protocols. And, uh, you know, they're, they're what, they were all offline protocols. Yeah, there was, a, there was a doctor somewhere, but it was not a direct medical control. So it, it, it isn't fair to set up paramedics without training and without experience into a role that they're not ready to assume. And, and a trial by fire can be very dangerous for both the paramedic and the patient as well. But I will say that the um, risk of um, not doing anything far outweighs the risk of, of doing uh, something wrong, especially if you have a, a competent paramedic and, and one that utilizes other, you know, allied healthcare professionals um, doctors, nurses that are in the area. So I think it definitely should be a team approach. Ideally, it would be nice to have a, a, a doctor uh, for supervision, but let's face it, there's some places where um, there, there just aren't doctors and doctors aren't going to go. And, and I think of some of the high threat missions that, you know, we did with the, with the State Department um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And yeah, you'll have some U.S. Embassy PAs or, or maybe even a doctor at, at the embassy compound itself, but you know, they're not out there in the field. Uh, they're not flying on the helicopter uh, with us. Um, so you have to really train and develop. And, and I like, am biased, of course, being a paramedic, but I really like the ability of paramedics to be problem solvers, um, especially if those paramedics are cross-trained in fire and rescue services. I mean, that's what we do. We, we fix things. We crawl into upside down cars. We, you know, respond to flooding. We respond to fires. We, you know, we, we, we make things work. Um, and so there's a mindset of, um, you know, never knowing what you're going to get. Whereas I think sometimes in our other, you know, brothers and sisters and allied health professions that are, you know, in a, in a clean and sterile environment, whether it's a, an A&E or an ER, um, where the patient's brought to them and, you know, somebody's scribing and, um, you know, everything is ordered and neat. And sometimes, our brothers and sisters in the allied health care professionals don't do well if they haven't been prepared adequately for operating in a, you know, very non-permissive environment or, or one in which you just don't have the resources. You know, they'll order, a, they'll look around for a nurse to carry out an order that they're going to give in and then realize there is no other nurse. It, it's you. Um, you have to do exactly that, you know, and whether it's wound debridement or, you know, uh, writing a script and then filling that script yourself um, there definitely is, uh, is a, you're, you're wearing a lot of hats, um, and you're having to do a lot of things 
um, that you may, you know, have had others to assist you with. And sometimes that means uh, utilizing the local uh, workforce uh, or local, you know, population that may have only a very basic uh, first aid understanding. You know, here, press here, hold this wound here, you know, open the airway this way. Um, you know, I, I've done that in, in numerous uh, different circumstances and even in, in trained others. And, and I think that's an important part of this too, is that we need to train the people where we go to be force multipliers um, in that they can care for other people after we're gone. Because we can be in a place for a week or two weeks and, and you know, carry out medical care, but what happens when we're gone? And, and I think that capacity building has many times been overlooked in certain organizations where they just go in, uh, they do a mission, um, they take care of things, but again, it falls back to that sanitation and, and, and lack of clean drinking water, and we were right back where we started. And, uh, you know, you can just see that by monitoring the cholera outbreaks that we, we have going on now and, and, and things like that, so... Yeah, those are those are very important points. And um, so, you know, one thing that I really you know love about World Extreme Medicine is the inclusivity. Uh, you know, they rec- they truly recognize that we all need to work together. And you know, uh, it, I, I really you know a lot of these types of programs are geared towards you know physicians, nurses, and I'm myself. I'm now a nurse practitioner, and I get to benefit from that. But they also include, you know, paramedics. Um, they include physical therapy. Uh, you know, they physical therapists can be one of the most important uh, people uh, in in some settings, uh, especially, you know, for the management of stroke and things of that nature. So, World Extreme Medicine's done a, a wonderful job about inclusivity and, and opening the training um, to all, even to laypersons and non medical folks. Um, so that's one piece, but. I also wanted to build on, you know, what you were talking about. It can be certainly a fine line uh, for, you know, kind of acting or working within your scope of practice. Um, And I think a lot of people, um, you know, think that, well, if I'm going to Haiti or I'm going to Sudan or I'm going to another developed country, I can operate well beyond my scope of practice. Um, Certainly there's, as you mentioned, there's a fine line. Um, What, uh, you know, what would your advice be to to people and what are your thoughts on kind of, you know, this scope of practice idea um, and working, you know, outside of our scope of practice in certain settings? Yeah, I would, I would say that you have to choose the right type of individual to go. Um, you can't choose somebody who is gung ho to the point where they want to, they think that the developing country is a chance to try out every new skill that they've ever, you know, seen illustrated or, or depicted on YouTube. Um, you know, I, you, you have to be very, very careful that you have uh, a maturity, both, you know, uh, mentally and emotionally with the people that are chosen to go on, on a deployment or on a team with you. And oversight is important. And, and when that, uh, it, we, especially for the first timers, I would say it's, it's very, very important that there is a, a doctor or a higher level medical provider overseeing a, a person. And that would be the ideal situation where you would be part of a team, you would deploy, you would have a set mission, there would be a, an existing structure. Um, I didn't have that luxury when I went to you know, Honduras the first time. It was a non-governmental organization. It was, ad, it was myself and another nurse. Um, and fortunately, she could speak Spanish very, very well. 
and we could bounce a lot of stuff off of each other. And, and you find in, in some of those situations when you have other healthcare providers, they're very, very good. Um, and, and she was very, very good at, say, the medications and, and what was appropriate in diagnosing, um, you know, especially uh, being a female, she was very, very easy to, to talk and with the other female patients about things that would, they would be culturally very reticent to talk with a male about. Um, you know, everything from PID to pregnancies to, um, you know, STDs and things like that. And they would be much, much less prone to give a full accounting of those symptoms to a, to a male provider. And that goes back to understanding the culture of the environment that you're operating in and understanding that, you know, as a male, you're not the best person to, to have that conversation and, and it, you play a more supporting role. Yet when there's a trauma or something like that, you know, that's where you may have the male para paramedic um, that is very, very good. That's their skill set. So I, I think that's definitely an important part of it. Um, yeah, that you, you really, some people can get themselves into trouble. And, and I know there there's been at least a couple instances where I've uh, seen people um, attempt to act beyond their scope and uh, that, and they were quickly reined in by uh, myself and others that just were like, you can't do that. Um, you're only certified to this level and you're trying to give out, you know, a, a narcotic and no, that's just not happening. So there does need to be a system of, of checks and balances, especially for, for your newer members that are, that are out there in the field. And, um, yeah, uh, that, that could be a, I could actually have a whole nother podcast on, the, <laughs> on that topic probably. Yeah, those are that. That's important. Uh, those are important uh, issues, and and I appreciate you know your kind of thoughtful response to that because it is we do see you know people thinking that you know this is an opportunity of medical tourism to to practice things that you know are beyond their scope, and, and we really still need to be respectful of of your training and and know that you know these people are deserving of uh, the best care, and you know if something beyond your scope um, that you know, it's best left to, to those people who have experience with those, be it a procedure or medication. So thank you for that thoughtful response. Uh, you also mentioned capacity building and the importance of that. I think, again, you know, you mentioned uh, that a lot of times, you know, teams will come in, set up, be there for a week, maybe two weeks, providing care and then leaving. Um, what has been your experience with uh, capacity building and and do you have any advice to our listeners on on how to integrate that into you know their medical plans for when they're deploying? So I, I and this is one of the things that that I think probably frustrated me the most um, in Sudan was just uh, and well a bit in Honduras too, but I just I didn't understand it as fully then. But it was it was very very frustrating to think okay we're here for three months um, in Sudan and then we leave and then what what what's going to change there's still okay there's a well here that's been established so that's good they have clean drinking water uh, you know good for the UN the water program on that um, but the sanitation issue really hasn't changed there's no there is no you know continuing you know casualty field hospital or or, or care facility uh, there's no um, you know, supply of medications, there's no uh, medical doctor or provider going to be present. And so what's to prevent this from looking exactly the way it did before we came uh, within a year or two? 
And I, I just saw a lot of really well-meaning organizations um, go in and create a lot of light, like a flash in the pan um, with an address of an immediate problem. And this, this happens at every single disaster um, that, that I've witnessed. And, and we're even seeing it in, in some cases with the Ukraine situation where they will highlight a current cause, raise a lot of money off of it, and then there'll be an, an earthquake somewhere and the first one will be forgotten about and off we go again to the next one. And so it's kind of like a, a halfway between whack-a-mole and, you know, spot fires um, because it pops up here and they jump on this and then they're on to the next one. And there really isn't any long-term capacity building that will fix the situation to be better prepared for either the next disaster, um, whether that's, you know, a tsunami, an earthquake, um, you know, in building in, in terms of, you know, maybe search and rescue teams, maybe more standardized uh, housing construction in, in some places, uh, flood control, you know, in others. But what what is being done to build the capacity of the responders in that area? And one of the things that I was fortunate to be able to do is go back to Honduras in 1999 and help teach an EMT class on the island of Guanaja. And, you know, that was to help build that emergency team's response for the next hurricane. Well, of course, they had another hurricane, you know, a few years down the road. Um, and they're a little bit better uh, prepared because of that. But I, I see too many times where capacity building isn't really a thought of, of some of these organizations. And I, and I think that we need to have a more thoughtful approach um, with, you know, whether it's USAID, State Department money, and I'm talking from the U.S., as to what we do to build resiliency, what we do to build capacities in these communities uh, to prevent a disaster from happening, first of all, and then to pre-position, you know, stores, supplies, and, you know, a roster of capable personnel that really function as kind of what the, the military uses, the mobile integrated uh, training teams is so you go in, you partner with um, your the local counterparts, and you train them, and you give them you know direct advice on how to set up their emergency response system, and that may involve communications, that may involve vehicles, that may involve leadership training, that may involve you know what are they really lacking. But in order to do that, you have to conduct an assessment of what the needs are. And really get their buy-in and really formulate, you know, how what your end goal is as far as preparedness, and then bring in people that can relate to them competently uh, in their culture and that they trust, and then build that capacity. Because I, I see too many times where it it is just gone in and we solve the immediate problem, or so we think. But then when we leave, there's this vacuum that kind of exists, and then things just kind of, you know it's it's like the sand in the in the beach you know when the water comes in you might have you know made it an impression or on a hole but it just it all just fills back in um when that when that um when that resource is gone we, we want to be careful that we don't replace the need for local resources by supplementing it to a point where they become dependent upon that need and and we stay away from the you know we swoop in and solve all your problems and then population becomes dependent on that for that short time period. But then when we leave um, as an organization, um, nothing has been gained and, and there isn't anybody that can train other people to deliver care, whether it's first aiders or, or first responders and, and that, that type of training and, and the capacity of the, of the hospitals themselves 
um, you know, haven't increased. I, I've seen donations of x-ray and MRI equipment and beautiful hospitals that were built and literally don't have any capacity because the government um, and the funding organization of that country did not work together to ensure that that facility was going to be staffed. So brand new medical equipment still sitting in its, in its plastic wrap in the, corner, in the corner, not able to be used because there wasn't a thoughtful deployment process or capacity building in, in that country. Yeah, those are incredibly important points. And, you know, build, building that resilience, um, taking an all hazards, you know, planning approach, training local individuals and, and really thinking, you know, about what's the greatest need for that particular area and how do we, you know, best, uh, you know, train these individuals or provide for these individuals. Like you said, you can buy a beautiful CT scan if you don't have a CT technologist or even nursing, you know, to to, to staff those, uh, you know, hospitals, then the system's going to fail. And I, I think we take a very, you know, kind of um, centric approach, uh, not just necessarily U.S. centric, but developed country centric approach to trying to solve these problems when, like you said, it oftentimes comes down to very, very um, basic principles like hygiene um, you know, sanitation and some very basic care uh, that is really going to, you know, uh, provide a, a much greater resilience uh, to that community. And so very, very important points. Um, we're actually running up against our time, believe it or not. I, I think we could spend the rest of the day chatting on these topics uh, and, and hopefully we'll get to do that uh, together at some point. But uh, I, I did want to uh, say it's been a delight to chat with you today. I hope that you're going to be joining us again in November uh, in Edinburgh for the World Extreme Medicine Conference. Any plans for attending? Uh, not only attending, but I'm actually presenting. Um, EMS oh, excellent. Yeah, I'm presenting on EMS leadership lessons learned from uh, the Arctic to South Sudan. So it'll, it'll talk a lot about the cultural competency that we were talking about today. I'll, talk a little bit about the Congo. We didn't talk about the Congo. We didn't talk about Afghanistan or Iraq at all. Um, and those were uh, interesting times to be sure. But uh, I really appreciate the conversation and, and I would encourage anybody that's interested in becoming involved in humanitarian medicine and working outside, um, you know, in, in outside their comfort zone and in developing countries. I'm happy to give advice. Um, I wish I had known a lot of the things that I learned along the way. Um, before getting into this, but uh, it, it's very hard to get into sometimes. I've, I've learned that from from people that have just said, "Well, I, I'm trying and trying, and I and I can't get uh, in." And I always encourage people join an, a non governmental organization. You know, it doesn't matter uh, whether it's, uh, but just get some experience outside the country. It will it will build you. It will build you as a person, and it will and it will build some things like. Um, your ability to communicate um, across cultural barriers and uh, that experience is, is invaluable. Well, great. And that's, that's a great teaser for those who want to um, learn more about this, you know, certainly attend your, your um, discussion at the world extreme medicine conference uh, in Edinburgh in, in November. I'll certainly uh, be doing that as well. Uh, and uh, we'll also have in the show notes, some ways uh, to get involved and, and some some ways to contact you as well. Again, it's been a delight, a pleasure. Uh, these were incredibly important topics. Uh, certainly 
again, we could spend the rest of the day talking about you know each one of those topics. Uh, and I appreciate you taking the time and, and I appreciate your thoughtful approach to all of these issues and, and sharing that um, information with us today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the chat and I've had a lot of very good mentors and friends along the way that have helped me. And so I just want to do that for other people that would like to get involved in, in a calling like this. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Alan. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk taking, rule bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more. <laughs>